2: Hello, Welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On
1: today's show, we take your etiquette questions on wrapping up a party, lending a hand without giving offense, sending condolences during the holidays, and how clean to keep a home.
2: Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a PostScript segment on napkins continued. Coming up... Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I'm
1: Cindy Post-Senning. And you're not Lizzie Post. No, I'm not Lizzie Post. And
2: I can see that because I'm sitting here with you. But for everyone out there who can't see your face right now, it is so good to have my mother, Cindy Post-Senning, here in the studio with us today.
1: Well, it's my pleasure to be here, my dear son.
2: I should give a bit of an explanation. Lizzie Post is out and about in the world. She has two big projects this year, and she is conducting research for both of them. And I am going to be flying solo here in Vermont for a couple of weeks, and – In thinking about guests for this show, I went to my most immediate and closest circle, my family. So I am really excited that my mother, Cindy Senning, is going to be joining us today. And next week, if all goes according to plan and babysitting schedules work out, Pooja Senning is going to be here for our guest. And initially, we had been thinking that Pooja would be here this week, but... Something happened on the way to the forum.
1: All the weather issues on the East Coast this year came to bear, and a friend of mine and I who were traveling to California to the Moro Bird Festival on the Pacific Coast, our plans got completely messed up. A delay of a flight in Burlington caused us to miss the only JetBlue flight out to Palm Springs, da-da-da. So anyway, here I am until Thursday. So um, it's a pleasure to be here and spending some time with Dan.
2: Well, the Morrow Bird Festival's loss is our gain. And I got this call a couple of days ago from my mother at the airport saying, our flight's been delayed, I'm headed home. And I said, oh, that's so sad. Do you think you could come and record a podcast with me in a couple of days? Right. So here we are. Well, thank you for fitting us in. It's unexpected, but a pleasant surprise for me. And I also wanted to prep everyone out there for... Pooja's inaugural show next week I'm also really excited about that so join us next week to hear Pooja Senning who regular listeners those of you that are fans of the podcast must feel like you know already and I'm really excited that my wife is going to be able to join us and she's going to take a crack at some etiquette questions. Cool. For now we have a show to do this week shall we get to some questions Let's do it Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so that we know you want your question on the show.
0: Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing
1: Our first question today is end times, Schmend times. Love that title. Hello. I am a fairly new listener to Awesome Etiquette, so you may have answered this question before. However, here it is, perhaps again. I recently hosted an open house party. The invitation clearly stated it would end at 8. However, a handful of people continued to stay until after 9. These were people I knew, but not close friends, so I felt very reticent to say anything. What is a kind and appropriate way to enforce the ending time? Thank you for your thoughts and help. A new listener.
2: Well, welcome to the show, new listener. It's so good to have you on board. This is a question that we have covered before, but it's also one that, like a lot of evergreen topics, I think it's a good one to return to. So many of the things that we talk about are
1: things that we've talked about in the past, but we're sort of reinforcing the whole concept of the way we deal with other people, the way we approach people and get along. Um, so it's a good thing to be able to review our responses to this question.
2: Well, and, and I can't sit here with a previous generation of the Post family and not mention that the Emily Post Institute is a five-generation family business. Sometimes these questions are generational In in many ways – When Emily Post, my great-great-grandmother, was answering etiquette questions back in the early 1900s, she dealt with the same types of human condition questions that we deal with here on this show every day. And while the, the situations continue to change and the experiences of the Emily Post etiquette audience do progress and evolve, the core of our advice, consideration, respect, and honesty stays the same and human relationships stay remarkably the same.
1: Right I think the point that you're making Dan is a good one. I was thinking before I came in today the fact that I actually first started talking about etiquette and doing this as kind of a natural family conversation back in 1965 when my mother did her first revision of the big etiquette book written by my great grandmother so all of those years since 1965 that this topic comes up amongst us as family members and we talk about these things and we talk about what would be a good way to move people on when the time has come to end your party.
2: So channeling Emily Post and Elizabeth Post, your mother, and also thinking about Trisha Post, a member of the family from your generation who gives a great answer to this question. I see it as a development that happens towards the end of the night. If the party ends at 8 o'clock, I'm thinking about 15 minutes beforehand, you start to give cues and signals, those subtle hints that things are winding down. That Those gentle hints become firmer hints as you get closer and closer to that anticipated end time or that hoped-for end time. If people don't pick up those hints, those firm hints become a soft ask. And (laughs) if that soft ask doesn't do the trick, that soft ask turns into a firm ask. And Even as I I chart that out, I think to myself, there's probably a step that could happen even before that when you're issuing invitations. If there's an end time that matters, when you make that casual invite, hey, do you want to come over later, that you can also start to set some parameters, whether it's a a formal printed invitation or whether it's a more informal casual invitation, if there is an end time that you can anticipate or that matters to you.
1: Right. And our new listener for sure had done that in that she had done an end time on the invitation. She had said it would end at 8 o'clock. And she was concerned as 9 o'clock rolled along what to do. So maybe we can give her a little bit of a hand. I think when Trisha talked about it, she talked about things like you might change the lighting in the room. Say you had had the lighting a little bit reduced for kind of a party atmosphere. You might turn on a couple of extra lights and begin to give a clue that the end was coming along. I don't
2: know. That That's a good kind of soft cue. Maybe the light in the entryway where people's boots, jackets, and hats are. Ah,
1: Yes, I like that one too. Um, The other thing would be that you can even move on to a conversation about, boy, this has been a great party. Thank you so much for coming. It really has been a nice evening with you instead of starting a new conversation.
2: I like that. Other things that I've heard Tricia say involve starting to put the food away, starting to do a a, a little bit of a cleanup. And I think that's a a firmer hint than the wrap-up conversation or the the starting to prep the departure area or – Phase of the party.
1: And then finally, you can even get to the point where you're going to do a more firm ask and and mention again a, a follow up to what a great evening it's been and how much fun you've had talking is that you hope that maybe there'd be a chance to continue this at another time, but you really have to get yourself ready to go to end the party because you have something you have to do early the next morning, whatever, something like that. But you really get specific about asking people to
2: leave, in essence. I'm trying to channel Lizzie Post in one of her sample scripts. Wow, you guys, thank you so much for coming. This has been a great night. Yeah, yeah, I love that way to
1: do it. I think all of those things, it is okay to say that. You've indicated an end time on your invitation. You're beyond that end time. You really need to get going. You need to do some stuff and and reach that point where you really make a verbal point that the party's come to an end. New listener, thanks so much for your question and bringing us back to an issue that we've been able to talk about for a long time and we'll probably talk about again in time to come.
2: Now
0: let's think back. What made this party such a good one? Leave on time and courteously too, thanking your hosts sincerely for the good time you've had.
2: Our next question is titled, To Lend a Hand. Hello, Lizzie and Dan, or in this case, Cindy and Dan. I am a recent listener of Awesome Etiquette and have been completely hooked. Your podcast has made commutes to work actually enjoyable and have made me more mindful of how my actions affect others. I have been making my way through your podcasts and wanted to apologize if this question has been brought up, but I have a bit of a conundrum. I work at a university with a large hospital, an outpatient medical center that serves a wide and diverse patient population. Often, my work duties bring me to these areas of campus. Despite the University Health Center trying to make the campus as inclusive and disability-friendly as possible, there have been a number of times that I've noticed some wheelchair users experiencing difficulties getting around the campus of our fairly large medical center. For example, the other day, I saw a middle-aged man trying to back up his wheelchair onto the sidewalk for what seemed like a good seven minutes. He looked winded, and my first instinct was to offer some assistance but that seemed like my able-bodied privilege talking. I didn't want to assume that this individual necessarily wanted or needed assistance. I was just wondering what the appropriate course of action would be in future scenarios of this sort. I'm proud to be part of a university community that promotes inclusiveness and diversity and would like to use the privileges I have to uphold these values. Thank you so much for the important work that you do. Sincerely, Anonymous.
1: So this question is a question that's come up before. We think about it often and what kind of a position we'd be in to help someone with a disability. Is there an appropriate or an okay way to offer that kind of assistance that wouldn't be offensive? And um, not only that, we noticed – we went back and looked at our own 19th edition where we knew we had a section on talking to people with disabilities and how we might do just – respond to just this question. What we tried to do at Emily Post is to talk to people with disabilities and talk to some of the organizations that support folks with disabilities and find out from them what's the best way to make this kind of an approach. And we have several responses.
2: So like you, I was curious what we had said before about this. And when I cracked the Emily Post Etiquette 19th edition to remind myself of what we had written just a couple of years ago, I was really pleased to find that the way that the whole discussion had been framed was with an acknowledgement that there's something like 41 million Americans who have some kind of disability. This is roughly 15% of the population. So it really is an important question, not just in this particular environment, but for all of us. And I like to acknowledge another new listener to the show here who's bringing up a question that I think is a really important question and a question that we have talked about and I hope we will return to again in the future as well. As far as the particular advice, I think that the overarching advice that I want to give here is that you ask permission to provide that assistance, that you don't assume that it's needed, but that you don't let that fear of that assumption prevent you from offering the help, that in the same way I would want to help anyone on a snowy street if they were having difficulty of any kind, that you would feel comfortable offering assistance and that The fact that you're thinking about offering that assistance in a way that doesn't assume that it's needed or doesn't project that assumption onto someone I think shows some real care and there are some things that you can do and – I think the, the, the most basic and the simplest one is to remind yourself just to ask.
1: I know that Lizzie is always our script person. She's the person who gives you specific ways to, to make that. So the specific ask here is pretty simple. Can I give you a hand? You don't even have to go any farther. You don't have to comment on how difficult it looks or anything like that. Just can I give you a hand? And if the person will answer you, they'll say, no, I'm good. i Sometimes takes me a little longer, or they'll say, Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Either way, it doesn't matter. It sets you up to know what the expectation would be for you.
2: We always say that if there is a traditional courtesy that matters to you, that if there's some type of help that you would like to offer or some sort of courtesy that you would like to perform and you're not sure how it's going to be received, that you just ask permission to perform that courtesy. And then you give someone else the opportunity to say, Oh, that's quite all right, I've got it, thank you so much, or to say, oh, that would be remarkable, could you please? And... That's as simple as you can be with it.
1: It's so basic, and it's not just for people with disabilities. When I first read this letter, I was thinking about the fact that sometimes when we're talking about gender issues, people will ask us if they should pull a chair out for a woman. Should a man pull a chair for a woman? And our response on that has been, ask her. Say, can I help you with that chair? Then if she's one who likes to have the chair pulled out for her, she'll say, sure. And if she's one who prefers not to, she can say so. Say, no, I'm okay. I've got it. It's, well, this is not that dissimilar. This is asking somebody if they could use a hand and they'll let you know if they can or if they can't.
2: Anonymous, we hope this helps as you navigate your medical campus and that you feel comfortable offering assistance in a way that respects people's independence, but also allows you to offer help if you think it might be needed.
1: How do you go about being thoughtful? What do you do? Every time I try, I only make things worse. Is there some particular method of being thoughtful that works every time? Our next question, Seasons Greetings with Tough News, brings up a difficult situation sometimes. My 93-year-old mother passed away in September from a sudden illness. We tried to notify as many friends as we could think of about her passing. There are some people who have moved away from the area that are unaware of her death. Christmas cards have been sent from friends that do not know of her passing. I'm not sure how to respond to some of my mother's friends. She had purchased Christmas cards with her name earlier in the season because it was becoming difficult for her to write. Would it be appropriate to send one of her cards along with a handwritten note and a memorial service card? What might the note say? This is a situation that I never anticipated. Distraught. John. John, our condolences. We offer our condolences to you and your family. I think the important thing here is going to be that you definitely let these other friends know of your mother's passing. It's sad news, so you want to express that you're sorry you have to share sad news during a joyous season. And you can say as much as, unfortunately, my grandmother, Emmeline Louise Randall, passed away this September – Our advice would be not to use her stationery. It could give the impression that she is the one responding. And you really don't want to
2: do that. That could add to the confusion of what is going to be some some difficult news for someone to be receiving. And I think you want to keep that message as clear and as simple as possible. Uh, A correspondence card or a fold-over note that are are pretty basic neutral stationery I think would be best if you're going to be replying in the post. And I think if you're replying to a – a written note, something that came through the mail and you've got that address available to you. It's relatively easy to respond in the same medium that that message arrived in. That that would be the way I would be inclined to go.
1: Right. And I think it makes it really a personal note from you talking about your grandmother. I I think that's the the way to do it, Dan.
2: Now, there's An interesting corollary here, something that comes up in today's new media world with new technology, and that's the way people manage social media accounts after someone has passed away. And there is a certain courtesy to not using a social media account in a way that gives the impression that someone is still alive. And it's it's a, a version of this question that has come up a couple of times recently. And the, the The advice is that sometimes it's really nice to leave a social media account active. Sometimes a social media account becomes almost like a, a memorial for someone it's a place where people who've known someone will leave messages or or connect with each other um and, and it's, we hear from people about being connected um in the world by someone who who isn't alive any longer and it's really quite remarkable when that happens. At the same time sometimes these accounts are are automated to post and sometimes that gives the impression that someone's still alive and that can cause confusion and hurt sometimes someone who's managing an account after someone has passed away will attempt to notify people using that account and will end up sending conflicting messages in the same way that using someone's personal stationery to send a note that they've passed might send a conflicting message so I thought I would take the opportunity of answering this question about a very traditional method of communication, the written word and the, the U.S. Post, to also talk about some new technology etiquette that's starting to come into play more and more as people are figuring out how to manage social media accounts after someone has passed away. John, thank you for your question. And again, we offer our condolences at what can be a difficult time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
2: offer. Our final question is about how clean to clean. Hi, Lizzie and Daniel, or again, Cindy and Daniel. I'm the pastor of a church living in a parsonage making my etiquette question a little unique, perhaps. My wife and I often debate about how much we need to clean up our house before we have a guest in our home. I often say that we don't need to clean as much as my wife seems to want to, partly because I don't like her stressing out about sweeping and mopping and dusting. But because sometimes people from the church come into the home for only a few minutes to say hello or to fix something, and other times they are babysitting for our young son, I think it would be too much to clean the sink's toilet's tabletops and pick up all the toys at that time. I think we should just focus on organizing stacks of paper and leave the rest. And if someone is coming to babysit, shouldn't we leave the toys out anyway? Part of this, too, is that I don't want my church to think that we can't be open and transparent with them by always cleaning up what our actual lives look like. I want them to see us as just another couple living real lives. But I also don't want them to think that we don't care enough about them to clean a little. I typically defer to my wife in most things, so I'll be perfectly happy if I'm defeated on this. But what do you think? Do we need to clean the entire house for every guest, no matter how long they are here or for what purpose? Or can we sometimes leave the house a little dirty and a little messy? We're looking forward to whatever advice you can give us. Thanks, John in Vermont, and Merry Christmas. God's peace, Reverend John H.D. Lucy.
1: Well, I was interested when I read this. I have two very close friends. Uh, One is a pastor and his wife who lived in a parsonage for quite a long time. And the other is a pastor and his wife who have not lived in a parsonage at all. And it was interesting to get their perspectives on this.
2: I was so curious to read your show notes about this because you went out and pounded the pavement and did a little research and talked to some people dealing with very similar situations.
1: I did. The woman who was my friend who lived in a parsonage for a long time used to talk about this as an issue. And it just so happens that she is an immaculate housekeeper anyway. So she she kept her house beautifully and it probably wasn't a big problem. But I do remember her talking about one time when she was wallpapering the bathroom and so stuff was pretty messy and someone came by and she thought they were a little judgmental and it's an awkward situation for the pastor and his wife. They're living in a house that is not theirs. The house belongs to a group of other people who might have very different ideas about how that house should be kept. The question is, how do you do that? That's exactly what Reverend John Lucy is asking us. What What is the appropriate way? When I talked with the woman who'd lived in a parsonage, she felt that um, it, was, it would be important to keep the house the way you would expecting guests anytime, as if it were your own house and you would be expecting someone to stop by, whether it was a member of the church or not. Now, keep in mind that she's the one who was the immaculate housekeeper to begin with. So that would be very important to her, whether it was her house or the parsonage. The other uh, person that I spoke to, the pastor who had opted not to live in a parsonage, had actually had an opportunity perhaps to do so and had chosen not to because he and his wife felt they didn't want to be in that situation of having somebody else own the house that they would be living in and maybe feeling free to come by anytime or come and sit on the porch anytime. It's a little awkward situation.
2: What I'm hearing here is An awareness of the fact that in some ways this house is more than just your house, that when you're living in a parsonage, it really is not just your home, but belongs to a community. And. In the same way that when I'm talking about workplace etiquette, I talk about deferring to a slightly more formal standard, what I'm hearing in in the awareness that both of these people you talked to had is that there is some sort of deference to that community standard, that there is some awareness of your responsibility to be maintaining that house in a way that might have as as much to do with the other people involved as it does with your own set of standards.
1: Right. And I think what what it led to was it led to the comment that that the writer had made about his wife being stressed out that he that he worried about it, you know, causing her stress and things was that I think if you reach that point where you're concerned about how your house is looking and how you're presenting somebody else's house, if that concern is causing you that level of stress, is it affecting your ability to be welcoming when people do stop by? And that you need to be thinking about that also. So I think you do have to make an effort. You have to know your community. You have to know the community that owns the parsonage. And in some communities, it might not be a big issue. In others, it might be an issue that you really do have to attend to and know which way you're going to go with it. The final thing I'll say is, is that the pastor that I talked to who had opted not to live in a parsonage told me that this, in in general, this is a big issue for pastors. It's a big issue uh, across the board. That whole concept of knowing how the people who own the house might want it kept and how that may or may not conflict with how you would keep a house is an issue for people. And it's good to see that Reverend John is thinking about it and concerned about it.
2: There were two points of etiquette that I heard come up in your answer that I really, really love. One is the idea that ultimately the the way that a house is welcoming is determined by your spirit and your ability to be a generous, gracious, welcoming host and that your awareness of how your duties and responsibilities maintaining the home impact your ability to be that gracious, warm, welcoming host is so important and that finding a balance in terms of the general maintenance of the house that leaves you relatively comfortable also answering the front door and welcoming people in I think is is one thing to be keenly aware of. The other thing that I heard you say that – really bears immediately on our core principles of consideration, respect, and honesty is that d- the idea of being authentic. And I hear that in the way the question is asked, that mm-hmm. there is a real desire to be um, upfront and upfront in an honest way, uh, that we are real people, this is the way that we live, and we don't want to feel like we're constantly putting on a face for right. addressing a public or a group of people who w- we don't feel authentic when we're then dealing with.
1: Right. And it's not just an issue of authenticity. It's also an issue of one of our core principles, respect. Whatever you do and however you manage that parsonage that you live in, if you're treating that building with respect – when I talk with kids, I talk about respect for others, for self, and for your things. Treating that parsonage or your own house, whichever it is, with respect and care, that's going to come through when people come and visit whether you're a little bit more messy or whether you're that immaculate housekeeper. So I think – I I like the thought of authenticity but I also like the thought of being respectful both of the house that you're in and the people that are coming to visit you.
2: This is a long answer because this is a tough question. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that this is a classic battle. Husband and wives – the world over have <laughs> versions of this discussion all the time. Um, spouses of all genders have questions about this type of presentation, how you keep a home all the time. I was in some ways wishing that I had Pooja sitting across from me to answer this question because this is a discussion that we have all the time and the added layer of responsibility to the community that that maintains the home adds another consideration, another respect element to this discussion That's that's important. I think that you're going to find your answer in good communication both with your wife and maybe with the community that you're in service of. And maybe that's a a sit-down discussion, but maybe it's more of a discussion that you're having in terms of really thinking about what the standards in that community are, the times and ways that you open your home and make it an available place to members of that community. It's not an easy question and there aren't any easy answers, but the thought and care that you show with the way you've raised this question, I think are going to help you as you navigate all of the micro decisions that are going to happen every day that are really going to ultimately provide the answer.
1: Thoughtfulness? Everybody tells me to be more thoughtful. Well, I'd like to be more thoughtful, if I only knew what it meant. Thank you for your questions. We so appreciate them. You can send other questions, updates, or comments to Etiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show.
2: Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today's feedback begins. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your show. I have a longish commute and often listen to it on my drive home. I just listened to Still Grieving on show 165 and question your response to the letter writer. First, I'd like to extend my condolences to her on losing her husband and express my admiration for her ability to articulate her distress she felt upon receiving her relative's emails asking for some of her late husband's things so soon after his passing. The problem I have is that I'm not convinced their behavior was indeed rude or out of line. She said that one of the emails was from her late husband's parents. Surely the loss of their child is as much a loss to them as her loss of her husband. I can't help but wonder if they needed something tangible to remind them of their son and help them through their own grieving process. Maybe asking for it over email was not the ideal way to bring it up, but I think it's not always easy to think straight when you're in the fog of grief. Thank you for listening to my concerns and for providing such a great podcast about etiquette, such an important topic, bringing civility to an often uncivil world. Warmest wishes, Sarah.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for your thoughts concerning this issue. Um, it's helpful for us to hear the different thoughts that people have as they listen to the letters, and we appreciate your sending them on to us. is so often a balancing
2: act. There are, there are different sides to every situation, and relationships are complicated, and it's certainly true that in the fog of grief, we're not always at our best, and having our antenna out and really thinking about where other people might be coming from is so important at these, these moments in life when feelings are heightened and our, our reactions are often so strong.
1: Right. And I really like her concern for the late husband's parents. Um, I, I see exactly what she means in her comment and appreciated it. And we also received a different take on a question about a misused name. I laughed out loud how hard you tried to help, thanks, but that's not my name, be polite about her personalized address stamp, a gift from her bank. Although it seems possible that this was a gift from the individual bank employees who pooled their money to buy the stamp, it seems far more likely that this is a gift the bank gives to each person or family who signs for a mortgage from the bank. I would have assumed that this was a corporate gift and the bank gives out at least a few every month. I think the bank contracts with someone to make the stamp, and the money is paid from a bank account, most likely marketing. For that reason, I would not be shy about mentioning the thoughtfulness of the gift and that I'm sorry I won't be using it because it has only my husband's name but not mine. And I would be able to do it with a smile and a laugh because I think it was a thoughtful gift with likely good intentions and not devious marketing thoughts. Since a company probably made the stamp for the bank, either someone at the company or someone at the bank who doesn't know the couple was probably responsible, and they just screwed it up. The bank could replace the stamp with the right names, and they should want to do that. If I was the responsible party at the bank, I'd be mortified and thankful that I was given the chance to correct things. The worst that can happen is the bank says, oh, well, and doesn't fix things. All of that said, I probably wouldn't go back to the bank just to point out their error. If I had business in the bank, then I'd mention it, preferably to the loan officer. Thanks for a terrific and entertaining podcast. and from Schenectady, New York.
2: And thank you for your feedback. I definitely connect with the spirit of your advice. I like the way that you're thinking about giving the – Other side, the benefit of the doubt, there's also a lot of really practical thinking about the purpose of this kind of gift from a bank and also your practical thinking about the opportunities and the cost of making that correction. That if you had to go out of your way to do it, you probably wouldn't. But if it happened that you could give that feedback in the course of your usual business, you'd probably mention it because someone there would probably like to hear it. I really do appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you all for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. Remember, you can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Another day is here,
2: and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? And today's postscript is a continuation of our postscript from last week about the napkin because, well, I just love napkins. And we have to go back to this topic (laughs) because one reading about napkins just isn't enough. Um, Before I get into some particulars and details about napkins, my mother had made some show notes that – I would like to hear a little bit more about.
1: One of the things that you all should know is that the main focus of my work at Emily Post Institute has been families and children. I've done a lot of responding to parents about when you can teach kids which manners when. And one of my very favorite things is that napkins, in fact, really constitute one of the very first manners that we teach our children. When that child is birth to one-year-old, we start feeding them, sitting in their high chair, and we put a bib on them. Bibs are first napkins. They protect our clothes from spills. We use them to wipe our mouths or hands, and they come out at mealtime. So that very young 10-month-old baby is already learning the value of that napkin.
2: And I'm just going to jump in here because a proud parent of an 11-month-old can't contain themselves when an opportunity to talk about their daughter comes up. <laughs> I love playing with napkins. We, we we definitely do the bib thing, Pooja and I, with Anisha. Um, but we also make a game of the face cleanup afterwards. And I oftentimes will sort of dampen a, a paper towel. And if you just go at her face with a paper towel, she, she – she wrestles away she doesn't want to but the second i make it a little bit of a game and we make cleaning the face sort of a, a little bit fun all of a sudden the cleanup becomes so much easier she likes to to suck the moisture out of that damp paper towel a little bit and and I'll sort of make noises and we'll 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 well, we'll blah, 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 with the napkin while we're cleaning up her face and i i like the idea of playing with that napkin starting to have fun with it starting to treat it as your friend <laughs> not as something that you're fighting against anyway Table manners start at a very young age. I think about my mother sometimes when I'm playing the napkin game with Anisha.
1: Bibs, first napkins.
2: And napkins are also first manners at the table for adults. And questions about napkins come up all the time. And when I first started teaching business etiquette seminars to professional audiences, we spent a lot of time talking about navigating the the table setting, the place setting, how to hold and use utensils correctly. And we didn't have a slide about napkins in our deck. It was sort of in some ways, an oversight, I think, because it's such a fundamental manner. And I was saying to myself, we need to get really explicit about our napkin advice. So one of my first contributions to our Dining Etiquette program was a slide about napkin manners. Some of the questions that come up most frequently are about placement of the napkin as part of your your utensils or your place setting. And Something that many people experience today is going to a restaurant and being handed a napkin wrapped around silverware where you're asked essentially to set the table for yourself. And when you are presented with that roll-up of tableware and a napkin or silverware and a napkin – You can unroll it, that napkin goes right into your lap, and you can set your utensils where you usually would. If you were setting a napkin on the table before the meal, it's oftentimes going to go to the left of the plate, sometimes to the left of the forks, sometimes under the forks. Sometimes it will be placed on the plate itself, right in the center of the plate setting. Sometimes it will be folded up like a swan and tucked in the (laughs) wine glass or something like that. There really isn't a, a firm correct answer. The most common placement is either to the left of the plate or on the plate itself when you do get to the table whether it's set folded up origami style or whether it is it is just placed to the left of the plate you can put your napkin in your lap that's like home base it's a safe place it essentially shows you've arrived at the table in more formal situations, you can watch your host for cues. When your host puts the napkin in their lap, you follow suit. Another way to think about it in more informal situations is just wait till everyone's arrived at the table. Wait till if it's a large table, till you have a few people around you, that rule of three, once you're there with a few other people, you can go ahead and take your seat. And putting your napkin in your lap early on is a good way to establish yourself at the table, to sort of take your place at the table. During the meal, your napkin stays in your lap. You don't tuck it into your shirt collar (laughs) or um, uh, wave it around. It stays comfortably in your lap, and that's for the main purpose of protecting your clothing. And it's also there, and I like to remind myself of this and audiences of this, to clean your fingers and face as needed. You don't want to eat in a way where you're constantly getting food all over yourself and you need to clean up after every bite. But your napkin is your friend. It's there to assist you in keeping yourself clean. So if you have a little bit of food on your face or you get some food on your hands, you can use your napkin to clean it off.
1: As I say to the kids, not your sleeve.
2: When you are leaving the table, whether it's during the meal or at the end of the meal, and this was definitely the topic of our reading from last week, the little mnemonic, the little sort of simpler version, if you can't remember the whole passage from Margaret Visser's Rituals of Dinner, and if you didn't Your last week's show, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's phenomenal. (laughs) Is loosely to the left, LL. Your napkin just goes loosely to the left of your plate. That's essentially where it came from. You're not going to crumple it up, but you don't need to refold it into that swan. You can just sort of minimize it, fold it neatly, loosely, and leave it to the left of your plate. In really formal situations, the restaurant might provide you with a new napkin by the time you return. They might refold it for you, but they're not looking for you to leave it – to the left of your plate or on the chair to indicate whether you're coming back or not. It's, it's understood where you are in the course of your meal and your service. You don't need to signal that with your napkin. The one other thing I'm going to mention about napkins, well, two things. (laughs) One is that it's not there to blow your nose or to spit into. One of the questions about napkins is if you have something in your mouth that you're not going to swallow, maybe you just spit it into your napkin. You can use your napkin to cover your face if you need to do something in your mouth with your fingers, if you know you have a little piece of food on your tooth, or if there is something that you're going to take out of your mouth that's a foreign object that you're not going to swallow. Using your napkin to cover that action discreetly is a good and appropriate use of the napkin. But generally speaking, you want to avoid spitting food into your napkin while you're eating or using it to really blow your nose. Definitely you can use it to, to, to cover up a little bit and in an emergency situations. You might, but it's not your handkerchief. It's not a Kleenex. It's not a tissue. I said that this would be one of the last things I said about napkins, but then I remembered that in the most formal of situations, you might be offered a choice about the kind of napkin that you want. Sometimes you will be presented with an option for a napkin that is uh, white or navy blue or black or a darker color. And that's so that if there's any um, lint or threads off a freshly laundered napkin, that it wouldn't clash or get on clothing of a different color. So you choose the napkin that more closely matches the clothing that you're wearing. So dark suit, dark napkin, lighter dress or attire, lighter napkin, if you are offered that choice in the most formal of situations.
1: I just want to add one more thing that I thought of. Again, sometimes when we teach kids, stuff just kind of comes to mind that I think is really helpful for remembering etiquette and manners. When I talk to kids, I tell them that every table manner that you can ever think of, and that includes napkin manners, comes from one of two things. It either comes from not wanting to gross anybody out around the table. So we don't chew with our mouths open because that would certainly gross everybody out around the table. Or we don't want to embarrass ourselves. We don't want to eat the roll from the plate that's on our right because that's our neighbor's rolls. And that would be kind of embarrassing. So the deal is that every table manner can be associated with either not grossing people out or not embarrassing yourself. The napkin etiquette is almost all consistent to not grossing other people out. You don't want to be sitting at the table with food all over your face, nor do you want to wipe that off with your hand or your sleeve. Both of those things would be gross. You use a napkin and you dab that food off of your face. So think about the napkin etiquette that Dan's just gone over with you. And I think you'll find that almost all of it has to do with not grossing the people that you're sitting with
2: and dining with. I could go on and on. We could talk about how you fold a napkin when you put it in your lap. Very simply, in half, the triangular diagonal fold works just as well as the half rectangle fold. Right.
1: Which might not be to embarrass yourself, in which case the napkin might slide off of your lap if you did it the wrong way.
2: If you have a paper napkin, you don't necessarily need to unfold every sheet of the paper napkin <laughs> to its broadest, widest coverage area because then it also gets very thin and it doesn't work so well to catch food and protect your clothing. Right. One of the digressions that I didn't take in this segment was to talk about napkins at home and how at, at our house growing up, my father would always offer you bread or a napkin if you didn't take either of those things with you when you went to sit down. And one of the places where I think about sort of courtesy and sort of my assumptions about what are some basics at the table are when I think about John Senning and some of the ways he treats guests in our home.
1: Well, Dan, I have a napkin story for you. Your father, many years ago, when he lived in the house that we're in now as a bachelor, and it was indeed a bachelor pad, invited my parents, his future in-laws, to come to dinner. And he had no napkins, but he was didn't feel good about that, and so he used toilet paper. It was awful, but there was little folds of toilet paper on the table beside where when he was having his future in-laws over for dinner.
2: So, you're telling me that my love of napkins is genetic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but both on
2: the post side and the setting exactly. side. Exactly. Right. So, I'm glad to hear an origin story about that back from a day when that impulse was still alive in him, right. even if he wasn't as prepared with all the materials.
1: Right. Exactly.
2: You would think that the napkin is a simple topic. We could go on and on. It's one of my favorites, and perhaps we will return to it again someday. But for now, we're going to leave it at a postscript reading followed by a postscript on napkin manners on one of my favorite topics for table you know i think we've got a pretty nice family
1: a fine thoughtful family
2: and we've got dishes to do
1: hmm.
2: we like to end our show on a high note so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world and that can come in so many forms today we have a salute from amy hi awesome etiquette team I'd like to give a salute to my amazing mom. She has always showed great consideration, respect, and compassion for everyone and has taught me well. Recently, we went to a large family brunch that had to have at least 15 people. When later, looking over the receipt, my mom noticed that she had accidentally miscalculated the tip and under-tipped our server. She made a point about two days later to go back to the restaurant with the additional money in an envelope and tell the server she was so sorry and there was nothing at all wrong with the service and we had a great time. My mother continues to be a great example to me of how to be kind to everyone, and I wanted to share this gem with the world. Thanks for a great show, Amy, in San Francisco.
1: I'm telling you, as one mom to another, I can only say that I'm sure Amy's mom will really appreciate this salute. Uh, Good for you, Amy.
2: And I also want to thank you, Amy, for sharing this on a day when my mother has really come through for me. I appreciate hearing about another mom who's a real model out in the world. And thank you for listening.
1: And thank you, everyone, who sent us something.
2: You can send us your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore post. And you can find Lizzie at at Lizzie with an I-E-A post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute.
1: Help us out. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. And our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Chris.
2: Thanks, Chris.